0: I'm Carl Ulrich, Vice Dean of Entrepreneurship and Innovation at the Wharton School, and this is Launchpad, where I talk to successful entrepreneurs about the secrets to launching and growing their startups. I'm very happy to welcome into the studio, George Arison, who's the founder and CEO of Shift. George, thanks for coming in. Thanks for having me. All right. First things first, you've got possibly the best domain name I've seen all year, it's just the word shift, folks. It's just a dictionary word. Shift, shift.com. Shift.com. That's really awesome. And uh, so give us the elevator pitch for Shift.
1: Yeah, so Shift is a way to buy and sell cars. If you have a car to sell, um, you come to our website, you submit your car quote, or you download our app, and you scan your VIN. Um, and or, and based on that car information that you submit, we give you a price quote on that car for how much we think we can to sell the car for, and then how much money you'd make on that sale. Uh, virtually all the time. You'd make more than you would if you traded the car into a dealer, Uh, and in many cases, a lot more than if you traded the car into a dealer. If you want to then work with us, we will come out and pick up the car from you and take it away, and you'll never see the car again, and we'll do all the work to get it sold.
0: Okay, so George, I actually... I have a 2012 Toyota Prius. I'm trying to get rid of. Walk me through how I do it and how much why why it's a better deal for me than uh, if I go to I don't know CarMax. I guess would yeah. Be so if you point. go to CarMax, you'd yeah. probably
1: get something that's like six or seven thousand dollars below the price that they're selling that car for. I see. Uh, assuming they want to retail that car. Yeah. If they want to not retail and auction that car, they actually give you an even lower price than that. Mm-hmm. Versus at Shift, you'd get a price that's you know three thousand dollars below what we would wanna sell that car for.
0: Okay, so basically you're saying that you're gonna take about half the margin mm-hmm. on a sale that CarMax would. What? What? What is it that lets you do that?
1: Uh, so I'll come back to that in a second okay. that's okay. Right. And then the other part of the business is on the buyer side, right. which is for people who wanna buy a car, mm. You come to our website, you find the car that you want. We have these really beautiful pictures of the car and a ton more detailed information about the car, including things like the inspection report, which details exactly the condition that the car is in. No one in nature does that. We kind of give you car facts and auto check information right away as well. And then if you want to see the car, you click on a button and book a test drive Mm. where the car shows up to your house for a test drive. So you can do that at any time of the day. Um, or while you're at work, taking a lunch break, et cetera, to see the car, do a test drive. And then the most miraculous thing for me is the fact that you can apply for a loan either on our website or on a mobile app that the driver who brings the car to you has with him. You can get approved for a loan on the spot, Mm -hmm. and you can close the transaction on a mobile device all in less than 30 minutes. Wow. And -hmm. at a traditional dealership, you're spending like four to six hours applying for financing and getting the transaction closed from the time when you pick what car you want versus a shift. The whole process takes about half an hour.
0: All right. All right. So we got to go back and put together a few missing links for me. Let's start with between snapping the VIN number and getting that thing listed on Mm -hmm. your site because... You don't. You don't know about the huge dent in my in my left in yep. my left bumper, right? So how do you how do you manage that? And what happens between the time I snap that VIN number, you give me an initial quote, and when you've actually been able to inventory that car? And, yeah. Yeah.
1: So um, you snap a VIN, you get a price quote on the car. We actually ask you like, is the car, what the car condition is like? Okay. Is it excellent, bad, good, yeah. etc. cetera? Yeah. But it's still not perfect because people might not tell us the sure. full information. Yeah. So then someone comes out to your house looks at the car very quickly just to confirmatory wise, diagnose that what you've told is actually true, and then takes the car away. At this point, you've signed a contract that's a preliminary contract, i.e. that we will sell the car for X dollars, mm. assuming the things that we know about it are true. And then we do an inspection uh, on the car. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that happens within two days. Uh, About 95% of the time, the inspection tells us what we thought we'd see, and we will then recondition the car based on what we think is necessary for that car to be in the condition that Shift feels comfortable selling it. Uh, In about 5% of the cases, the consumer says, oh, the amount of reconditioning you want to do is too much. The price will come down too far. I'm not interested in, in getting the car sold. In that case, we will then give them two options. We can either return the car to them, or we can actually just wholesale the car where we'll sell it to a, an auction to a different person who might be better off selling their
0: car. Okay. And in terms of the actual inventory and financial ownership, do you take possession of that vehicle?
1: So we take um, physical control of the car, and the car sits on our uh, lot. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we have warehouses in San Francisco, LA, and San Diego where we store the cars, uh, but we don't actually own those cars.
0: So it's consigned. It's in effect consigned yeah.
1: with mm-hmm. the from the individuals. We mm-hmm. also concurrently buy cars at auction. Mm-hmm. So about 25 or so percent of the cars that we're selling, we've bought at auction. Now those are the cars we actually own, but that's a limited part of our supply. Yeah. We also, um, over time, we'll be working with fleets, uh, where we get cars from fleets to, to sell, and those are also consigned. Mm-hmm. Got it.
0: Okay, and then uh, on the on the purchase side, h- how do you do the test drive? You send somebody out with the car? Is that yeah, how it works? So
1: Yeah, so about a quarter of the people who buy a car from shift come to the site, look at the car that they want, um, Select the car, click on a button that's a big red button that says test drive this car, pick the time when they want to test drive. The car shows up in front of their house. They either had pre applied for a loan previously on the site or they apply for a loan on a mobile app uh, uh, that the driver has with them. Um, It's just a kind of part time driver, like think of an Uber driver that's doing it, bringing the car, close the transaction. On the spot with the driver, and they're done. They never text to another human being at all. It's in effect true, like a hundred percent e-commerce. So, experience. so
0: basically, that test drive is test drive and delivery effectively yeah. at the same time.
1: Yeah, and yeah. That, so that happens about twenty five percent. Yeah, the remainder of the people. Um, need a little bit more qualification before mm-hmm. they buy, partly because our software is not in the place where we can automatically qualify everybody, partly because this is a very large purchase and you might have questions about sure. it. Sure. And so we have a centralized team of people, we call it inside sales, and in the, so 75% of the cases, there's a conversation that happens with the customer and our inside salesperson before the test drive actually happens. Mm-hmm. But in those cases, by the time the test drive's ready to go, then the customer's been really fully qualified and he's also gonna be able to buy a car on the spot. For us, one of the most remarkable things in 2016, 2017 was that we, like, middle of 2016, only about 20% of the time would consumers buy the car on the spot. Mm -hmm. So on the first test drive, make a decision to buy and complete the transaction. And the only customers that could do that were the ones that were paying in cash. Mm -hmm. Today, about 80% of people who buy a car from shift do it on the spot. Mm -hmm. Um, And so we've completely turned that around and... Um, that's been a huge project for virtually everyone at the company yeah. um, because we had to build a ton of tech to make that happen. Yeah, And we're the first company in the world, really, that has opened up the gateway for applying for a loan for a car online mm-hmm. to the consumer mm-hmm. so at a dealership you know once you pick a car that you want you then go into this back office where you are the with a finance manager who sits there types a bunch of stuff at the computer and it's like a big blue screen that uh, in in dos from 1990 that he's still using to uh, kind of communicate with the bank for a loan application we take on all that and through an api Um, with a company called Route One, exposed that all to the consumer. And so now the customer is the one who's applying for the loan, uh, we send that information out to the banks. Banks come back with an answer for whether they want to offer a loan or not. And then the consumer sees exactly what kind of loan package he's getting. And he can actually say, hey, I want to pay more of a down payment, reduce my interest rate, or actually I want to do less of a down payment and higher monthly payment, increase my interest rate, or what have you. So we've really released control of the lending process from the finance manager or dealership to the consumer.
0: All right, so this is a classic... Two-sided market in the sense you're a marketplace. Yep. You've got to have supply of product. You mm-hmm. have consumers for that product. Exactly. Wh- which which is the which is really the driver of this business in the sense of where where was the where's the biggest pain point? Was it on getting rid of my car? Or was it on buying a car?
1: This is a really good question, yeah. and I've thought a lot about marketplaces in the past. And um, this is always this kind of chicken or the egg thing, sure. like supply or demand. And in most marketplaces, supply is always the constraint. Mm-hmm. But what I've learned over the last you know, five, six years and thinking about it, and talking to a lot of people who are, quote, marketplace experts, although I guess a little bit, I'm a marketplace expert now. You now you are. <laughs> yeah. um, is that the best marketplace, actually, um, I switch between one side and the other mm-hmm. in terms of where the complexity is. Mm-hmm. So they start out with one side being really hard and the other one's really easy. Then the side that was easy becomes hard and then the one that was hard becomes easy and vice versa and you kind of jump around. And that's exactly what's happened with us where we started out where it was all about supply. Supply was a constraint. Uh, and once we kind of got to about you know 50 to 100 cars a month, um, supply started to become easier and demand started to become harder. Because mm-hmm. at that point, you become so big that you're way bigger than any dealership in a given region. Like an average U.S. dealership sells 50 cars a month. Yeah. If you're selling 75, you're already way bigger than average. Yeah. And then, so at that point, um, like demand is hard because you're trying to generate different kind of demand that, that traditional industry doesn't get. And then you get to like 150 or so and then again, supply becomes hmm. a constraint because now you're like, trying to get diversified supply but a lot of cars are commodity cars and so yeah. then you have too many you know uh, mustangs of a certain kind or something and so you kind of go back and forth between what's uh, constrained and what's not in different markets for us a different thing is a constraint mm-hmm. in la supply is very much a constraint and demand is less so versus in san francisco i think um, supply is less of a constraint because we now have a really good brand, and people kind of directly come to Shift mm-hmm. uh, to give us a car.
0: Mm-hmm. And on the purchasing side, let's just take the purchasing side first. What What are the the most significant attributes benefits that the consumer? identifies with Shift?
1: Well, I think number one is convenience. Yeah. Right? The idea that you can come to a website that exposes all this information about a car. You don't have to go anywhere else to learn it. Um, and is super transparent because mm-hmm. uh, we are a very, very transparent product. I mean, we show these huge pictures of scratches that might be on the uh, car, yeah. for example. Um, and and then you can say, oh, I am really want to see this car. Bring the car to me. Mm-hmm. And you don't have to go anywhere. Mm-hmm. I mean, to me, that's like a really remarkable experience. Right. So the way this got started is that um, one of my co-founders, uh, Joel Washington, his dad uh, was living in Maryland and needed to buy a new car. And the car was like, really need to be replaced, the one that he had. <laughs> and every single weekend, Joel would call up his dad and he's like, Dad, are you going to a dealership this weekend to buy a new car? And the dad's response was, oh no, it's going to take all day. I don't have time to do this, but, et cetera. And eventually, once we started getting into this business, Joel's like, Dad, what if I like got somebody from TaskRabbit <laughs> to go to the dealership, pick up the car and bring it to you, would you then at least buy the car? And that's like, yeah, that would be amazing. And so that's kind of how we invented the idea of bringing wow. the car to the customer. And so we think the convenience factor there is really huge. That's kind of point number one. Mm-hmm. Point number two is just the simplicity around the lending process. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we think uh, getting a loan on a car purchase should be easy and, and it should not result in you feeling like the purchase is not fun because Uh, this is the single biggest thing that um, an average American will ever own outright. Mm -hmm. So it's the second largest thing that anyone ever buys in the US. Houses are the largest. Mm -hmm. But most people never own their houses outright. Mm. Cars, people actually end up owning outright. So it's the largest single purchase that people truly make. And so... That should be a fun experience. You're out there going to spend $30,000. Let me enjoy it. Instead, you come out hating it because it was such a terrible experience. And a lot of it has to do with the lending uh, and servicing process for that purchase. And we really wanted to make that super easy. And we think software is incredible at being able to do that. And you can create magic through technology um, and through kind of creativity of the engineering talent that we have. And and I think we've done that. And so that's sort of the other thing that's really, really special. Mm -hmm. Um, The notion that you can sell a $30,000 item without having a salesperson in the car with you is also pretty cool. Um, you know, I quite honestly didn't believe we could do that when we first started testing that out. When first Shift first got launched, the salesperson was in the car. Mm. Like we called them a car enthusiast and he was like a super trained, very qualified person and customers loved that experience. But we realized that that was not going to scale because the economics of that weren't going to work. And so we then said, how do we maintain that really amazing customer experience of people loving the person they're talking to? He's super knowledgeable. He's not pushy. But replacing that person um, with somebody who would be more cost effective, and so we said we can keep best of both worlds by putting the car enthusiast on the phone with a customer, but having a driver who is you know less expensive and also probably is more part time, and so we can flex it up and down based on when demand is really high. Um, and so I didn't really think that would work. Um, Toby Russell, who's our president, uh, really did, and he got the team really excited about doing that, and um, and it turned out to be an amazing. Kind of outcome for us because our economics significantly improved um, and the experience actually got better. I mean, one of the most remarkable things I think for investors in seeing our, um, our numbers from last year were investors who had seen our conversions in the field or were used to already be impressed in 2015, 2016, like you had a 35% conversion, so 35% time when you do a test drive, someone buy right. a car. And now we're at like 50% conversion. Yeah. And that's after that change. So, yeah, yeah. so everyone's like, wait, you replaced the salesperson from being in the field to being on the phone, and your conversions like went up to 50%. That's pretty remarkable, and, and it was great for us. So, That's um,
0: millennials. Millennials hate the phone. They, millennials
1: they, it, it, dislike the phone. And, yeah, I mean, yeah. I, I like the idea that, you know, again, a $25,000, $30,000 item, people are buying it without talking to anybody, that's actually pretty cool. It makes yeah. me... I'm Very very happy that what we envisioned, you know, five six years ago is actually now working yeah, today.
0: Yeah, awesome, George. So you alluded to, actually the first thing I want to circle back on something you said that that I want to underscore for our listeners, and it's a subtle point, but it, the the interesting thing you said to me was that if you think about buying a car. It's actually not the car itself that's that's what you're selling. You're selling an experience that mm-hmm. allows me to acquire that car. And part of that service experience is financing. Absolutely. And and that became a key service element of this experience. And that became, in some sense, one of the key attributes of, of what you were Absolutely. doing. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah, we
1: are not just the marketplace for the vehicle. We are right. the marketplace for the service that you're right.
0: getting. So the you're entrepreneurs buying. out there thinking about your business, I mean, the, the insight here is that you want to look at the entire customer journey from the moment they feel the pain to the moment that pain is is. Yep alleviated, and think about what elements might provide an opportunity for differentiation. Absolutely. I'm
1: a big believer in um, what one of our investors, uh, Ian Friedman from Goldman, calls augmented marketplaces. Mm -hmm. So marketplaces, in kind of the traditional sense, were completely Mm -hmm. hands-off. And that's fine, but in the present day and age, as you kind of go more and more into replacing traditional model with uh, a tech-driven model. You can't just do that. You also have to have this augmentation of the service. Um, And that's really hard and creates a lot of complexity and, you know, it hurts margins, et cetera. Mm -hmm. But that's when the users end up being really, really happy.
0: Yeah. Um, I want to turn to uh, maybe a vague question, but I think it's the the question here. I, I mean, this is not all that original an idea, honestly. I mean, there's a lot of people thought about this, um, and and the benefit proposition's pretty clear. Uh, but it strikes me that there are like 100 things you can screw up, mm-hmm. and there's probably 100 things you have to get right in order to make this a real business. Yep. So maybe you can talk a little bit about how, I mean, I'm thinking about operations, pricing, setting up loans how do you know you can make this work and how do you know which of those things you have to work on in order to make it really work as a business, given that, the idea itself, okay, it's not, it's, you know, a lot of people have thought, have thought, hey, it's a big marketplace, yeah. we can figure out how to. So, yeah.
1: Yeah. in general, um, ideas are cheap. Yeah. Executions, that's hard, yeah. right? Yeah. Uh, and, you know, any great company can think of, whether it's Google, Facebook, et cetera, there's, four or five companies that came before them that had a very similar idea, they just Mm -hmm. executed on it very differently. Um, So I I don't think there's such a thing as like a fundamentally unique idea, even when you have a proprietary unique algorithm as, for example, Google does or whatever that might be. Um, So I think uh, most businesses are built through really strong execution. Uh, I fundamentally believe that, uh, you know, innovation is going to come in businesses that do that through technology. Mm -hmm. Uh, I am uh, an odd thing in that I'm a founder of a... Super engineering-driven company. Mm-hmm. Who is not himself an engineer? Ah. Uh, and I think uh, you know I've had to earn a lot of credibility <laughs> in getting engineers to want to work with me. Um, I think I've more or less done that, and I'm, that's probably the thing I'm most proud of and mm-hmm. what I've done as a as a as an entrepreneur. Um, and so. On that side, my general approach is kind of to say, look, I know that there's magic in software, and I know that great engineers, the 10X engineers, can create that magic. I honestly don't know how they do that. <laughs> uh, and you know, if I spend five years learning that, I probably could figure it out, but I don't know. I'm going to depend on them to tell me what it is that they're going to do. Mm-hmm. And my job is to help them have the resources and the capacity to be able to execute on the, the engineering and technology that they want to execute on Mm -hmm. Uh, so that's kind of how I've approached that side of things on the business side of things I think yes there's a lot of moving parts and it's a pretty complex business and I don't think we've always been really good at focusing to the level that we should Um, you know but the same things that make uh, an entrepreneur being able to be a really good entrepreneur which is believe in impossible things and kind of make stuff that everyone else thinks is not going to happen happen uh, also oftentimes ends up resulting in you wanting to do too much stuff yeah because you're like, oh well I' made this happen I can do 10 mm-hmm. more things but virtual reality mm-hmm.
0: why even take photos Would yeah, say, yeah, yeah. Uh,
1: but that's yeah. very dangerous yeah. and you need to like really focus and so I'm really lucky because um, you know my best friend and, and uh, somebody who works at Shift with me and, and is a huge part of this company. And actually probably the idea itself belongs more to him than does to me mm-hmm. even though you know five years ago who, who can quite sure, articulate sure. Who, whose idea was what um he is very different from me in that he is much better at focusing people's attention and stuff and so what we've generally done is george will come up with 10 different ideas and then toby will block five of them and <laughs> focus people on the five that actually really matter yeah uh, and that ends up being a really good outcome um for the business yeah uh and obviously we still have a lot to do on clarity and and Communication and as we grow to be better at that, because we still sometimes kind of fall back to being uh, thinking we're a ten percent company rather than a two hundred percent company. So to go back to the kind of the specifics, yes, there are a lot of moving parts, but I think ultimately the decision we made was the unique experience. Here's on the buy side. Um, the sell side experience is important, but it's not as unique as uh, as the buy side experience. And so we're putting a ton of our resources on the buyer side mm-hmm. and then doing enough on the sell side to kind of keep things interesting and keep growing, but not really investing on that as much as we potentially yeah. could. So some people say like, oh, wouldn't it be better if I could like send you five pictures of the car so that you'd know more about the car before I send it? Agree. That's a great idea. Mm-hmm. We've had that idea for a long time, but that's one of those we've deprioritized in order to put most of our resources on the buy side rather than sell side. Yeah.
0: Yeah. All right, I want to take take you back to the the founding days and and also to something you said in the describing the product. You're going to need to get by on about half the gross margin of of CarMax to to make this work. And and I wondered when you started, when you had the idea, how did you model out, think about, validate whether you could actually make this work or not? Yeah. And how did you prove it to yourselves first and then to investors?
1: So quite frankly, one of the big learnings has been that things are going to cost a lot more than you think they're yeah, going to cost. Yeah, And this is not, the, so this is my second company. Um, we had done another company before called Taxi Magic, and we learned the same thing there. Things are going to cost more than you think they're going to cost. So I had thought, you know, we could probably do things at a much lower cost base than, its actually possible yeah and there's still a ton of costs we can take out, so I don't think we're like at you know best possible cost structure today that mm-hmm. we will be in two years. and if you compare us to today from uh, you know, two years ago, we are like way better. Um, but uh, I think our general belief was you can make slightly less money on the sell side and the buy side. Um, but you can make up uh, with more revenue through loans and warranties by having higher attachment rates, and ultimately we wanted a business that was going to break even on the car mm-hmm. and make profit on the on the financing. Interesting, um, because yeah. we got into this idea actually initially through financing. Mm-hmm. Um, we we wanted to. Uh, a couple of us had an experience where we needed to get a loan for a car and we wanted to do it outside of the dealership model, and we couldn't because banks in the U.S. do not give loans outside of dealerships for a car purchase. You have to mm. go through a dealer because uh, all the loans are done through what's called indirect lending. And so we're like, why does that have to be the case? Why can't you have a, an online experience that allows a customer who wants a loan to get a loan uh, outside of a dealership? And that's how we got into the space. We realized that actually regulatory-wise and bank behavior, but you couldn't really change their behavior on that um, without building a transaction platform first.
0: I see. So you're and a loan company that sells cars. Exactly. Yeah.
1: <laughs> uh, and long term, I think you could even see a world in which, and this is one that like Toby, for example, is much more excited about uh, for the long term, and, and I think uh, he's right, um, is... You will have the shift product as it stands today, which is kind of the full white glove concierge service. And you could have a shift X product um, kind mm. of playing off over X where sure. we do less of the stuff. We still do a lot of it, but we do less of it um, for the seller and the buyer. But the buyer is still able to get financing and warranty and qualification from shift. Uh, and the bu- seller is able to get the buyer from shift um, where we still provide a lot of the services, but in a less uh, kind of tight hand touch way as we
0: do t- yeah. today. All right, uh, George. You're a private company. You're not going to tell us your revenues and anything, but give us a sense of how it's going. How's the traction?
1: Things are going great. Yeah. Uh, we're really happy with where the business is. Um, not to say we haven't had hiccups. Everybody has had uh, hiccups, but we are actually very, very happy with where things are. Um, one, I don't talk about revenue much, but at a very high level, uh, there's a company named Carvana that went public in April or May. Mm-hmm. Um, they do something very similar to us without the test drive delivered, yeah. so they do online only sales. Yep. Um, they uh, Their revenue their revenue net, so not gross kind of value of cars, but actually like what they care the, yeah. The, yeah the, the, the net revenue. Yeah. Um, last year was roughly um, uh, 19 million, mm-hmm. and we were half of that. Yeah. Uh, now, they did 3X our volume of cars because they make less per car than yeah. we do. Um, but if that company, you know, was kind of able to go public uh, with that kind of numbers the year before they went public, uh, I feel really confident about where we are as a business. I think we've been really lucky in the fact that um, we've learned a ton uh, from the last three years and we can now start putting that into scaling and and growth.
0: Great, Um, so you mentioned taxi magic and if I read your bio right, uh, in 2007 you basically invented Uber, right?
1: Not just I, but yes, we yes. invented Uber.
0: Yeah. All right. So this this is what tells you that the idea doesn't really matter, right? So talk a little bit about that experience. It's 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 pretty cool. So in 2007, you started a company called Taxi Magic. Yeah. What's the difference What was the difference between that becoming what came, which is successful, yeah. and Uber? Yeah. yeah.
1: Uh, a few things. So one is, uh, we um, we focused just in the taxi industry and we wanted to be a software layer only. We didn't want to have the operations. Mm-hmm. So Uber probably was the first company that really was willing to be a ah. tech company with really heavy operations. I see. Uh, and that actually then gave me a lot of confidence for doing Shift the way we do it. Yeah. But. Uh, back in the day, we are like, oh, wait, there's a software layer. We're going to partner with Taxi Fleets. Uh, they're going to do all the delivery of the experience. But what happened is it really improved the booking experience, but the delivery of the experience was still really crap because the cap companies didn't want to get any better. Yeah, and yeah. we are like pleading with them, hey, guys, you got to become better or you'll be eaten live. And they are yeah. like, no, no, we don't want to become better. And you're like, well, that's the kind of dumb, but that's what happens when you have monopolies. Um, we, I think another thing that was really different about Taxi Magic versus Uber and Lyft is um, we did not experiment and learn Uh, as quickly as we should Mm. have. Like the test and learn model was really not there. We had a view of what product would work and it was a really good product ultimately for the consumers. But as we got feedback where things needed to change, we were not willing to change. And I think one of the things that you have to admire about Travis so much is that when Lyft actually is the company that really revolutionized things by taking the idea of book a a car on a mobile device which is what we invented Mm -hmm. we we, Tax Magic invented and couple that with but that car is not going to be a taxi or a black car it's going to be just a random dude that picks you up and he's going to do that for 10 hours a week and that's it I mean that was completely and he didn't even pay them by the way yep (laughs) (laughs) he didn't pay them so it was a completely revolutionary thing Um, and so uh, and, and, you know, Uber saw that. At that right. point, Uber was just a black car right, right. version of Taxi Magic. Like, Taxi Magic was doing taxis. Uber was doing black cars. Right. And, and both were doing fine, but in very different kind of ways of doing that. Uber saw what Lyft was doing and said, no way are we are going to let them do that. We're going to cannibalize our own business right. massively and really destroy the black car business to go build this thing. And because they already had operations in, you know, 30, 40 cities, it was much easier for them to launch... Uber acts in all the different markets, whereas Lyft had to go slow because they didn't have the money and the operational presence to kind of replicate this model in many different markets. And so, I re- obviously like Lyft deserves a ton of credit um, for inventing what they invented, which is the non-licensed delivery of a transportation service. Um, but Uber deserves a lot of credit for just really going after their traditional business and cannibalizing it. The kind of two companies that have done that in tech in a very powerful way have been Apple. Yeah. and Uber, and yeah. so I don't want to comment anyway about all the other stuff that happens yeah. over there, but that thing you have to really yeah. admire amazing. Travis for.
0: Amazing, yeah. amazing. Okay, we just have a couple minutes left, but but George, I want to turn to a sort of personal question. I read somewhere in your bio that your grandfather was a senior official in the Communist Party in Correct. the former USSR, so you you were born in, in Georgia, and not, not the state of Georgia, the Central European company, former USSR uh, country of Georgia. Um, Talk a little bit about that journey, coming from, you know, effectively— I mean, it, w- it wasn't communist when you were, when you were growing up. Oh, it was up. super communist okay. when I was growing right, up. It right. became
1: non-communist when I left. Ah, okay. Um, yeah. No, I was very, very communist, and, and, you know, Georgia was probably better than, say, Russia or Ukraine. Where yeah. people, no one in Georgia actually believed in it, meaning everyone followed it, right, right, but no right. one actually believed in it. Right. But they knew that, like, we have no choice. We have to follow it, right. versus like, I think in Russia, a lot more people actually believed, it truly, it. truly okay. believed in it. Because when you look at Georgia now, like, when the Soviet Union collapsed— Nobody in Georgia backs the Communist Party. Versus in right. Russia, 25% of people still back the Communist yeah. Party. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I was very you know, lucky in many ways because I had opportunities that most people in the Soviet Union did not have. I had English tutors when I was a little kid. Um, I had uh, other tutors when I was really young. I learned how to ski when I was two years old. I mean, these yeah. are all kind of very uh, unique things that I was given. And that's a lot of what enabled me to come out because in 1989, an American couple came to live in Georgia, um, I got introduced to them, and they actually ended up living in one of our apartments. And they were amazed that this, like, you know, eleven-year-old kid spoke fluent English, and yeah. then would teach me a lot of uh, English, kind of most for yeah, conversation. Yeah. Uh, and then left me a book of um, prep schools um, that I would need to apply to when I was a little older. Because they left when I was twelve, and I couldn't apply at twelve. I had to wait till I was wow. thirteen. And so. Um, then I applied, and I had these references from Kathy and Jared Cadwell, who are the family that um, mm-hmm. was living with us, and, like, these are American teachers who, like, knew this kid and whatever, and it, you know, I got accepted to a bunch of these boarding schools um, and got scholarships, and I was really lucky, and then through, like, fax machines and tux machines, I r- arranged my kind of trip out here. I remember when I ended up at the U.S. Embassy in Moscow in 1992 to get my visa, like, Georgia is now being war-torn, so Union right. is collapsing, right. and uh, this immigration officer, who I know nothing about, obviously, but he, this, this is like most likely his first, first job, because at state, your first job as a, council officer, as a uh, state department official is a council officer? Visas. Yeah, yeah it's, exactly. it's like a horrible job, and so this guy's looking at me, he's like, what the hell is this, like some 13-year-old kid <laughs> about to go <laughs> to the states <laughs> to some school in Maine, and they had never actually let anyone do that before. And so I was the first Soviet kid to be allowed to go to a prep school on my own without government sponsoring me and kind of really worked out really well. I, I view that as my first startup. Yeah. Uh, then Toby and I created another company uh, or another model to buy clothes in the U.S. and ship them to Georgia when we were in college. There was a second company. Taxi Magic was a third. And then uh, this one's kind of my fourth.
0: All right. Well, unfortunately, we're out of time. But let me just make a note. Immigrants 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 right i mean it's an uh, yeah, immigration I'm a, story right i
1: think i've written like eight op-eds on yeah. immigration and i'm all for yeah in my view is that you graduate from american college and you're a foreign you should get a diploma and a card. absolutely college.
0: you heard it here folks all right george thanks so much for making the time and coming in thank you all right for more information about shift just go to shift.com great name i'm carl ulrich vice dean of entrepreneurship and innovation at wharton Launchpad is produced by Business Radio, powered by The Wharton School, on Sirius XM, channel 111. The show airs live on Wednesdays from 7 to 9 p.m. You can find more episodes of this podcast on SoundCloud or on iTunes.